Today we're speaking of trust. The word trust has different dimensions of meaning according to how much trust we have embodied or experienced embodied in our lives and how much lack of trust we have experienced embodied within ourselves and with others throughout our lives. So I'd like to begin with a concept from what has become from a Western mm, Greco-Roman concept to be a global concept of how we have acculturated to the modern era. We've used a concept of the mind or thought and the concept, I think, therefore I am. And we've extrapolated that out <clears throat> for about 3,000 years to define the safety of becoming the next moment through our, our literal thoughts from the frontal lobe of the brain. But this is not life. It's part of life. <clears throat> it would be as if we said, what do you know of the sea? And a person might say, I think I saw a dolphin's fin up there beyond the next wave. We assume that person knows so very much about the sea. And all the while, we're not paying attention to the tribal fishermen who's dwelling with owning two pairs of shorts and one pair of flip-flops and three t-shirts in a small hand-carved dugout canoe. And when we ask him, do you know the sea? His entire soul and heart and body resound. He could tell us about the weather that's coming for the next nine days in a general manner, where the different schools of fish run, at what seasons, what the light looks like flickering on the surface of the water, what it is to see a tiny baby sea turtle and an ancient one. He could tell us more stories than we have memories. They're etched within him <clears throat> they move through him into his ancestors. And interestingly, they move through him into his ancestors and the ancestors of all the sea turtles that have ever lived in any part of the oceans. We would call this enlightenment. However, in our modern terminology, we tend to speak of a particular individual who was a young prince, Prince Siddhartha, who lived in the areas of what is now Nepal and northern India, who became enlightened in his mind with his thoughts and said very famously, with our thoughts we create the universe. And then he proceeded to study the enlightenment of every other part of his being. However, in modern terminology, where we've prized intellectual education, we tend to take a little girl or boy from anywhere in the world and ask them to please sit still and learn with the frontal lobe. Pay attention. Your teacher is writing on the blackboard or showing you something on a computer or a workbook. And the child learns that when he or she thinks, or they think with their frontal lobe, in a linear way, 
<clears throat> based on mathematical concepts of 0, 1, 2, 0, 1, 2. And they receive a question from 0, 1, 2, and they answer 0, 1, 2. They please the world, and they're conceptualized from a frontal lobe of a teacher or a parent or a neighbor or an elder or a colleague, a classmate, a sibling, a younger child. He is so smart. She is so good in school. You know, they are really a great student. And yet in the evening, if that child is so fortunate, he or she or they partake of fish, safely caught by the fisherman or fisherwoman. Or if they're vegetarian, they partake safely of grains grown or fruits or vegetables grown or protein constructed from fruits and vegetables and grains. And we tend to override that as if it were less than the zero one two equation so brilliantly conceptualized by that young student. And we train this over and over and over again. So <clears throat> it's wonderful to be very good at these qualities. It's very wonderful. When I was 14, I solved an equation mathematically that had never been solved. And my teacher asked me to stay after school one day and wrote it on the blackboard, the question. And it took about 20 minutes to solve it. And he was just um, extremely emotionally moved and went and immediately called one of his professors who told him it had been solved like two months before it was some famous equation. I don't even know what it was. <clears throat> I do know that I was functioning on levels that were beyond that part of my mind that solves equations, and very possibly I could simply find intuitively the answer. I don't really know how I found the answer. He just asked me the question, and I answered the question. It was not difficult for me. I was not particularly smart. Let us say I was aware or lovingly present with my teacher. That's very different from thinking. Okay, and then at the end of high school, I was third in a class of 800 students, only because we'd moved from New York State to New Jersey where the grading was more difficult. And so I would have been first. And you know, other people discussed how important this was. I was simply aware that it brought honor to my parents, that I loved being present with that which is noble in my teachers, that I missed the countryside of my childhood. I was very curious about the urban world and that I was interested in the deep richness in literature and what an equation in chemistry or mathematics might lead us to of love embodied. That's always been what I've been studying. If there's anything in life I've ever been lonely for, I'm not really lonely, I never feel really alone. I always find God present, the creator, the universe. And I find it present in all other beings. So when I sit with someone, <clears throat> I have the good fortune of that relationship is present for me. It, it's always present for me. It's not perfectly known and understood. 
However, that trust is there, implicit, in absolute good faith in myself and any other sentient being. And so if I've ever been lonely for anything, it was a longing, a quest, that this should be realized in us all to the best of our abilities, that the sweetness of that love, wishing that love for other beings, that has always been my entrustment. I've known this since I was conceived and born, and that there is really only this. So <clears throat> what is in the way of this? Well, when a child comes into any circumstance, including being born, we're usually told what's great about them and what's not. Oh, I hope they don't have their grandfather's ears, or I hope they do have their grandfather's ears, or nose, or hair, or eyes, or intelligence, or great heart, or same possibilities in the world. We wish for them a safety and a capacity of a, a healthy and fruitful life. <clears throat> and then we can feel around us all of the other places in other beings or in our own anxieties or fears about those beings or about our own history and the history of others. How do I make war with all the competition, the lack of permission, the invalidation, the intoxication, that which does not let my son or daughter, my child, be fulfilled in the next breath. And we start to hold our breath ever so slightly as their protector. And we use the frontal lobe and the lesser part of the mind, like a screen in front of us, as if we were looking through our eyes and our forehead at a mirror. And we partly see only our own opaqueness, our opacity, opacity, what we can't see clearly. We reflect back, and we believe that that's the only reality. And then we look out at other people and at aspects of life, <clears throat> and we react against them as if they also are opaque, an, an opacity of color and light. No ability to hear the sound of heaven, but to hear the sound of our fear. And then we start thinking and our mind races with using light and sound, our vision and our hearing. Oh my goodness, what if the baby's not safe? We extrapolate that out to the cells of our body. And rather than being love embodied, we are fear embodied. My baby's not safe. And we take the next breath. They're, they're still not safe. <clears throat> and we begin to form a series of judgments about all that's wrong in the life of our baby and all that's wrong or inadequate in the life of ourselves and our spouse or partner, the grandparents, the extended family, the neighborhood, the planet, the human race, all of creation. And we try to justify creating an armored next breath and moment of our baby. And this is not real with a capital R. This is not of the self the soul awakened in God. This is of what is said in Hinduism in a prayer, from the unreal lead me to the real. So from the fearsome lead me to the love embodied. And we go, but how do we still make the baby safe? Well, 
In the next breath, we inhale grace, light, sound of heaven. First silent and then trust. Oh, my heart and soul understand this. You know, my baby is made of this. And I answer, I know. What shall we do in relationship? Out of the creator, all-powerful, out of the mercy of the creator, in gratitude, as purpose, in relationship, father and baby, mother and baby, person and baby, myself and baby. What happens when we begin to trust in this way is in that next moment as we inhale, we are allowing the grace of what is real to be realized in our baby. Oh, the baby's next breath into the future is of heaven on earth. What a blessing. I am here to witness this of the light and sound of heaven as I breathe and in my body I begin to know in trust love embodied as a gesture of the next moment of that breath as heaven on earth. And when we have the courage to embody this principle, the miraculous comes to move through the baby and ourselves as that silken thread upon which all the pearls of all the breaths of that baby's life can be safely represented. We ask for the baby to be protected, for our spouse or the parent of the baby, if it's someone else to us, to be protected, that we ourselves be protected and all of us guided in all ways. And then what begins to happen is the mystery of the thread stringing the pearls of all the breaths of that baby's life is their path, their purpose. And it's conjoined to the threads of heaven in all other human beings, the entire human race. And then the race, the culture, the ancestry, the disposition of personality of every single one of us is just part of the texture of the pearl of our incarnation. Oh, you are like this upon that thread, and he is like this upon that thread, and she is like this upon that thread, and I am like this. Oh my goodness, here we are. And then when the next breath entrusts itself to God so that the light and sound of heaven move through us, the mind that is the smaller mind is like looking through a window and we can only see and hear and intellectually understand part of what is going to happen through each of ourselves and one another. But if there's a moment where discernment is needed of great care with a wild animal or the weather or a difficult insect or another human being, 
There is a place in the heart and soul that knows how to turn toward that protective alignment or posture and yet not go to sleep, not enter a war with God, not enter an argument within ourselves, not enter demonizing another human being, not saying, oh, you are of this tribe. I am from a different one. And so when we can stay with that unified field of love embodied, the creator moves in the most mysterious way through us. And we find that the next moment is actually transformative for all beings. I would call this evolution. And then we are of the still point of eternity, which is always the same. One, ineffable, unnameable, yet a place we all know, a state we all recognize, of which we are not afraid. And then the next moment is also mysterious and changing and transforming and alive. But it is alive in God, which is more powerful than being alive only partially in our fear. So if we allow the changing part of the universe all around us and within ourselves to be the instrument of that unchanging part, we start to live in the place of the heart and soul where the great mystics consider home to exist within themselves. There is meaning. There is always a path. There is benevolence and courage, humility, tenderness. Virtually any virtue we would conceptualize is present in that state. And yet there is a purity or innocence where who we are in heaven is guiding us <clears throat> in a body which was born and will die someday, which we take care of. But we take care of it more like a blossoming flower than a prey animal. We take care of it as a blossoming flower, not as if we are a predatory animal. It is very difficult for us to let that go. And we have become masters of the small mind until we pick apart as bullies everyone and everything. It's all over the press. It's all over the fashion magazines, all over the Internet, all over social media. And young people everywhere are seeking what I'm speaking about. They want to know, is there permission for me to live from who I am? Always. Everywhere. 